Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 423 is recorded live October 17th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I have to say it's a little chilly. It's getting to that time of the year. Joining me is Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and enjoying the coolness. I would like to see it go one hard freeze to get rid of the mosquitoes. And uh, maybe for the three days we had high winds. Did you see the photographs of the big lake? No, I did not. Average was 10-foot waves. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Well, so that might explain the buoy picture that we've got in the chat room then. You think that's what might have done it? Well, now that you say that, but if it was inside of a by a building, I'd imagine somebody picked it up before the weather turned. Yeah, but... It's bizarre. And what we're referring to in the chat room, we got photos of a buoy. And I think this one was from, this had to have been the Rockway because Kevin had gotten Havana buoy off a couple weeks earlier. Yeah. It's it's hard to tell from these photos if something's broke or frayed or what happened. But yeah, it was dropped off. The buoy was dropped off at the South Haven Conference Center. So, and we did have a, a message on the Preserve website that, Somebody said that's where it was. So I don't know if that was from the person who uh, had had gotten it or had found it in the beach or any backstory on it. But uh, we're glad it's turned up. And yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have this week is fuel to follow up from the story we've had previously. The fuel has nearly been removed from a shipwreck. And they say oil is still appearing in a marsh. The salvage operations progressed on the shipwreck in Golden Bay and the St. Simmons Sound. The overturned freighter's oily imprint continued to expand within the island's marshes, or the within inland marshes, according to local environment advocates. Crews have removed most of the 300,000 gallons of fuel that were on board the 656-foot ship that foundered. Overturning on the port side in the dark hour, September 8th, between St. Simons and Jekyll Islands. While heading out to the port of Brunswick with a cargo of 4,200 vehicles, as of Thursday's crew had unloaded more than 22,000 gallons of fuel from the freighter, said U.S. Coast Guard Petty Officer Michael Himes, spokesman for the United Command, or Unified Command. This does not include the fuel that was in each of the 4,200 vehicles in the ship's cargo hold which was the source of the fire that emitted flames and black smoke from the exposed starboard side of the ship as Coast Guard crews responded to the wreck around 2 a.m. on September 8th. Oh, so that kind of explains what that was from. Yeah, each vehicle had to have a little fuel to get on board. Uh, meanwhile, members of the Altam, Altam, what was it? what's that river name? A-L-T-A-M-A-H-A. 
Altamaha River River Keepers. And somebody says it, they'll be obvious. A postgraduate marine biology studies with the University of Georgia have found extensive oil smears in marsh grasses stretching as far as the Blythe Island and the Brunswick River, says Fletcher Sam's executive director of the uh, River Keepers. Sam said he, he and the students have found continuous stretch of oil marsh grass along the south shore of the Brunswick River from Cedar Creek to Jekyll Island all the way to Blythe Island near Interstate 95. Unified Command's shoreline cleanup and assessment team crews are treating the oiled marsh grasses with a natural absorbent spray comprised of, uh, was it Shafnum moss? <laughs> oh, better you than me on that one. I, I know. It's like you, you've got either every other letter is a, is a vowel or they've got a string of continents together that don't normally go together. It's, it's kind of like websites or businesses now. You've got to have something unique. Uh, they said it's a standard uh, oil spill recovery technique in marsh areas, binds the oil to prevent it from spreading and allows its natural degre- uh, degradation. Uh, degradation. De- oh, my goodness. Here, maybe I should have another drink. Additional response teams are patrolling the area beaches to recover any tar balls that may have come ashore using proper safety equipment and appropriate tools. Sam's has reported the, the news late last week, finding oil marsh grasses as far as, yeah, it's the same thing. They're going over and over and over again. Well, I posted a couple of pictures on the site because I was trying to figure out what, and now I know. But did they ever say why she turned, why she turned sideways? I'm trying to remember if we ever did hear or not. Um I can't remember if it was weather or wind or something. I don't know why that would do it in the shallows. Or they took the turn too tight. I, I, I'm trying to remember. I can't. Uh, it seemed like one of the last articles we had read said why. Yeah, because it's been there a month. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're uh, according to this article, they're not saying anything, but I think maybe there was speculation in some of the others. So the official investigation is still ongoing. And they said they won't be putting out the cost until the investigation is complete, deciding on who pays for it. And then another cleanup effort, uh, kind of a follow-up article, is Ocean Cleanup Device Successfully Collects Plastic for the First Time. Huge floating device designed by Dutch scientists to clean the island of rubbish of Pacific Ocean is about three times the size of France has successfully picked up plastic from the high seas for the first time. Boyan Slat, a creator of the Ocean Cleanup Project, tweeted that the 600-meter-long, 2,000-feet floating boom had captured or retained debris from what is known as a Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And... What, where did it say to clean up an island? Oh, not a specific island, but just a, a general island. Uh, that's some nice infographics in the article. Alongside a picture of collected rubbish, which includes a car wheel, uh, slat road, our ocean cleanup system is now fully catching plastic from one-ton ghost nets to tiny microplastics along with anyone missing a wheel. Uh, about 600,000 to 800,000 metric tons of fishing gears abandoned or lost each year at sea. Another 8 million 
tons of plastic waste flows from the beaches. Ocean currents have brought vast patches of such detritus together halfway between Hawaii and California, which is where it is kept in a rough formation by an ocean gyre, a whirlpool of currents. It's the largest accumulation of plastic in the world's oceans. The vast cleaning system is designed not only to collect discarded fishing nets and large plastic objects, but also microplastics. The fish barrier floating in the surface of the sea is a three-meter deep, 10-foot screen below it, which is intended to trap some of the 1.8 TN. What's TN pieces of plastic? 1.8. Not sure. Uh, without disturbing the marine life below. The device is fitted with transmitters and sensors so it communicate with positions with satellites to a vessel that will collect the uh, gathered rubbish every few months. Slat told a press conference in Rotterdam the problem he was seeking to solve was a vast expense it would come with using a trawler to collect the plastics. He said, we are now catching plastics after the beginning of this journey seven years ago. This is the first year of testing in the unforgivable environment of the high seas strongly indicates our vision is attainable that beginning the mission to rid the ocean of plastic garbage, which has accumulated for decades is win our sights. We now have the self-contained system in the great Pacific garbage patch that is using the natural forces of the ocean to passively catch and concentrate plastics. This now gives us sufficient confidence in the general concept to keep going on this project. The plastic gathered so far will be brought to shore in December for recycling. The project believes that uh, there may be a premium market for items that have been made using plastics for claim from the ocean. I think in a few years' time, we'll have a full-scale fleet out there. I think it should be possible to cover the operational costs of cleanup operation using the plastic harvested. plan is now to scale up the device and make it more durable so it can retain plastic for up to a year or possibly longer before collection is necessary. During a previous four-month trial, the, the boom broke apart and no plastic was collected. Since then, changes have been made to design, including addition of a parachute anchor to slow down the device's movement in the ocean, allowing for faster-moving plastic debris to float into the system. The largest trial began in June. The system was launched in the sea from Vancouver. The project was started in 2013. Its design was undergone several major revisions. It's hoped the final design will be able to clean up half the debris of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Did we lose you? No, I'm I'm still here. I'm just oh. taking a look at the the photos. Um, is this all they caught, or is this just a subsampling of it? I'm sure this is a subsampling because if you look at on the crew members sorting through plastic, what I I don't understand is how can you know collecting it is great, bringing it to shore is great, recycling is great, but why can't we recycle stuff that's already on shore? plastics why is that not economically feasible with this is or let me rephrase that hoping to be yeah i i think they both have the same challenge Uh, one of it is sorting yeah you can if you've got clean sorted plastics they're very recyclable depending on the types of plastics but uh you know most of it is a labor with anything it's uh the effort it takes to uh, filter it out into the different parts uh, so that it's it's clean enough that it can be made into something. But we're starting to see it. Uh, 
Well, that's why China, that's why China is not taking our plastics because it's polluted because they use it for a particular purpose. And if it's got too much impurities on it, meaning not one particular type, Mm -hmm. they can't use it. So they stopped taking our garbage. Yeah. No, they weren't doing it to be kind. They were doing it because they were trying to make money. And oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So they've uh, decided that they can make more money a different way and they're uh, not doing it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is all solvable problems. You just have to put the effort, the, the brain power into it. One of it might be mandating a certain type of plastics for certain uh, types of containers. If you're going to use plastic, it has to be this type, so that way it reduces the effort in in sorting it. Uh, well, well, when you say mandating, now you get back into how many countries of the world are going to agree to be mandated to. Oh, I'm not saying I, you you can't mandate anything beyond the scope of what you got. But, uh, you know, here here in the U.S., you've got well, probably disposable plastic bags, straws, and beverage containers. Yep. Beverage and food containers. That's your probably your largest three. If you could just get the U.S. to agree on it or states, uh, you know, because the bottling companies are all affiliated in what in what it's when you see the from a manufacturing product cost that's why all the stuff's commodity uh i think i think now at one point in time it was the the vessel was worth more than what the contents were now i think it's uh they're probably about even you know it's probably a penny a piece well i saw an article and i can't remember now where and i wish i did that several areas are going back to glass bottles for oh, milk yeah. And having home delivery, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're we're we're moving into where service has value, and we're also seeing. I don't know if you've noticed it in the area, but the Amazon vans. I mean, you'll you'll see them crisscrossing each other on the road now. There, I mean, there's I I saw four today, and just a one mile stretch. So you've you once you've got every house is being uh, visited by some sort of delivery service. That's the expensive part. Now, adding one item or a couple more items to each of those spots is just uh, incremental. And you are correct about how many people are using Amazon. How many people are using other delivery services? Oh, yeah. Just looking out my window today, I was amazed. Well, I've had two deliveries, three deliveries in four days. Yeah, from different groups, from stuff we have purchased online. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, Amazon knows my house really well. Well, when uh, it's cheaper, then you can go down to the store. It, it makes you wonder how can they possibly receive it, store it, and ship it cheaper than what the big box stores down the street are costing you. Well, it, it gets it, it, well lean manufacturing. It gets touched less. You know, this is a this is everybody. You might want to fast forward about eight minutes as we go through retail. But uh, as somebody who's worked in retail, who currently works in production and warehousing, uh, I mean, it, it's easy. Uh, you 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 know, when you go into your big box retailer, you've got signing, you've got stores. It's got to be wide enough. You've got carts. You've got damage, theft, shrinkage, paperwork, all that stuff. It's a, for for uh, Amazon. 
typically your manufacturer, if you are going to sell through Amazon, uh, you ship it to their warehouses and it goes from their warehouse to the customer. You've probably bypassed two or three handling points. It's, uh, and then Amazon is not making money. That's what most people don't realize. Amazon, the e-commerce and distribution is about a wash. All the money Amazon makes is actually Amazon Web Service, AWS, and the digital computer services that they built to do for the e-commerce. They've done it so efficiently that they can make profit on that. So that's their largest profit. And you also notice where even today was in, in the paper that uh, they just did the bill to make sure that where you to buy something on the Internet, you will now be paying Michigan tax on that item. Yeah. Yeah, Amazon for years has been uh, collecting tax in all the state. And most larger uh, retailers, because they've had locations in it, it's only been the smaller ones that haven't. And we knew it was just a matter of time before they were going to kind of close that loophole. Uh, the The problem is that you, you're like, like a lot of regulations, everybody looks at them and says, Oh, now it's finally fair. But the large businesses really want the regulations because it makes the barrier of entry higher and reduces their potential future competition. So if you're a big enough company, you can afford to, pay taxes in 52 states if you're you know the local manufacturer and you only exist in one state and uh, you you sell online uh, now you've added a whole nother layer of expense and effort that that small retailer has to uh, or manufacturer has to figure out yeah well just remember when you're doing your state income tax when that little form says did you purchase anything online and if so how much <laughs> to completely oh, fill it in i've never purchased anything online i don't know what you're talking about well when i said deliveries to my house i think that was my neighbors putting my address down for some yeah. material they come over and pick up exactly that that's how that works yeah well then the other thing that they've talked about is uh uh Whenever this gets heated up enough, somebody will start mentioning, well, how about a national sales tax? Oh, let's not even go to there. <laughs> or the, the value added, I don't want to hear that. Oh, no, no, let's not. Well, we don't want to turn this into a political contest. So let's go. Let's see what we got the next one. What, what's a non-political? Uh, mostly non-political. Pittsburgh Airport is auctioning off items. Uh, so if you're interested in a Dodge Ram truck that somebody must have abandoned at the airport, uh, you can get that, or a 2002 Chrysler Town and Country. Uh, they say it includes uh, thousands of pieces of jewelry, electronics, assorted goods. And the reason why we're talking about it is they're even auctioning off some scuba gear. So uh, that's the stuff that got lost in transit that you never got, and they paid you pennies on the dollars for it. Yeah, scuba gear isn't that like a balloon with a hose on the end? Here you go. Here's seven dollars. Yep. So there you go. Now you know where it's at. It's in Pittsburgh. God, I hate that. Did you hear that? My that audio from the video on that site just kicked in. No, I didn't. We didn't hear that. Good. Either. It's good for you. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I've uh what one of the one of the tricks I do is I use Chrome and I preload these articles and you can mute each of the tabs. So that will help. Uh so there you go, Pittsburgh. And then uh, here in Michigan, 
uh, cannabis or marijuana is now recreationally legal as well as medically legal. You can get it both ways. Uh, a lot of other states it's going that way. And Dan has just updated their uh, diving safety advice. What they had previously been saying was that uh, you should not be diving with any traces in the system, which was days, if not weeks. And now they're, they're saying in light of cannabis being legal, that it should be, uh, was it at least eight hours? <laughs> Which would seem to be quite a bit. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Dan suggested divers should wait several days, even weeks after using cannabis until the drug was no longer detectable in their body. This advice, however, is based as much around the drug's illegal. Oh my goodness. It was illegal. Uh, as it was in diver safety, cannabis can now be detected in the human body for several weeks, which would prove an employee subject to random drug test is used in illegal substance, but that's not why they're necessarily unsafe to dive. According to a new report, such a zero tolerance approach to cannabis use may be considered a violation of an individual's rights, given that the drug is no longer illegal in some locations. Judging whether a person is or not fit to dive, Following excessive alcohol consumption is relatively easy. Alcohol takes time to metabolize, remains active in the body long after the person has taken their last drink. If necessary, a relatively inexpensive breathalyzer test would show a person is too impaired to dive. The intoxicating effects of THC, however, do not last as long, with a study reporting that levels are low enough for normal functioning to go on land within an hour or two although this may be longer depending on the amount of THC consumed. There's no breathalyzer test for THC, and urine tests show only that a person has consumed cannabis, which may indicate non-intoxicating medical CBD, the CBDs, and cannot prove that a person is any way impaired. Given that cannabis is now legally available in some locations, Dan Advice focuses on the psychoactive effects of cannabis being the main acute safety concern during diving. Report states it is advisable that divers stay out of the water for at least eight hours following smoking or ingestion of cannabis cookies and the oils in the case of THC. Can be confident there's no psychoactive effects. This period should be extended if large amount is ingested. That's going to be quite interesting. Yeah, it appears what they're they're basically saying is that as long as it's not actively affecting you then you're fine. Well, depending on how do you mean affecting you, from the THC aspect or the CBDs or CDBs, which is medicinal aspect that a lot of people are taking it for, for the joints, for nausea, things like that. Yeah. Well, we've been giving that to our dog. You can buy uh, dog pills. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our our dog, you you, you know, a, a loud truck, fireworks, or a thunderstorm, this big dog's a complete mess. You give her a couple of those, she just lays in the carpet and says, I don't care. <laughs> so, Well, it just goes to the same thing. If you're taking a pseudo-nephron, you know, if you're taking sulfate, Dristan, which you can't get anymore, but any decongestant, you know, that definitely has an effect on you when you're diving. Oh, yeah. 
So oh, I, it's odd. I don't know. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're saying they're saying fifty percent of the people in the USA have used cannabis. Do you believe that correct? That's that's right? Fifty percent? Uh, uh, it could be, yeah. I mean you know, yeah. Um, well, I must be an old fuddy daddy because I mean I'm one of that fifty percent who hasn't. Yeah. Not yeah, knowingly so. at any rate. But then again, every job I've ever had is drug testing. Oh yeah. If you get this on your flight physical, which they're now trying oh, yeah. to introduce, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, we had uh, at work. I I got off my vacation and came in, and you know the HR was waiting there saying, "Hey, you missed last week's." Uh, drug test, guess what? You get to go today. So. Well, that's like ours was always random, always random. Every time I'd come back from Europe, it was randomly my week. Yes. Well, this one was a whole building. So that was, it was a spot check of 100%. So everybody who worked in that particular building, because they had found some marijuana, but we lost four employees. Now it was about, I would say almost 20% for that building uh, lost their jobs. Whoa. And uh, one of them was, a, is this nice older lady. I mean, couldn't be more than a year or two from retiring, had a medical marijuana card for pain. And you know, that doesn't buy her something. Nope. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I yep. would be very, uh, I, I think that's a lawsuit aspect there. Well, I, yeah, I think, you, the, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, because, I mean, she was a hard worker. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's for somebody else to uh, to work out. But, you know, it just, you know, is it worth it? Well, we'll see down the road. Yeah, well, yeah, because this could be, uh, you know, this, this could be, become so normal that, you know, you'll be, you'll, we'll be the odd ones out not not partaking. Well, I don't know how you can be normal if, if it's required you don't do drugs in your employment. Oh, yeah. That's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Oh, yeah. You you don't. I mean, it's like, a, do you not need your job or, or not? And again, do, do you really want a bus driver or a pilot or your doctor? <clears throat> I mean, it, it, how, how, where do you want to go with this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one thing that they, they have to figure out if, if, you know, when it's all legal, then you just say, well, if you ever show up in the system, we're just going to call it as good. But when it's legal in certain conditions, they now have to have tests that they don't currently have. I know the well, school was the school was upset because as uh, soon as this became legal, all the drug dogs uh, were retired. They had to uh, train new batches because they can't have a dog hitting on something that's legal and then doing a search. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to see at least Dan is being proactive in looking at this and at least voicing an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm surprised it seems a, a little lax because it's there it's almost like they're saying that there's no downside to cannabis use other than the psycho uh active properties of it. Well, the the THC is the big one. Mm-hmm. The other aspect from the medicinal aspects Without going through testing like they do mm-hmm. for Sudafeds and stuff like this, how are you going to know how it affects you 
otherwise. Mm -hmm. And again, even when the the pharmaceuticals test it, they're not testing it uh, for people who are under pressure of 30 feet, 60 feet, 100 feet. Right. See, that's what I was hoping is that there would be some actual sort of test that would determine what is the effect. Now, if somebody uh, partakes an hour before a dive and they dive, is it like, does it concentrate as it goes down? I mean, do they know what the, uh, the, what the properties are of it in those conditions? And nobody's going to spend the money to find that out because that is how much of the population that does that involve that they care about. Well, and nobody wants to say it's fine because once you say it's fine for one thing, then yeah, it might be, maybe it metabolizes and is fine that way. But if you just really don't care to help out your dive buddy because you're stoned, you know, who cares if you run out of air, I'm happy over here. Uh, then, uh, you know, nobody wants that liability. Uh, that's like vaping. Is vaping any worse than smoking a cigarette? Depending on if you're using legal substances, meaning that have been tested, because we already know diving and smoking, it is adversely suggested. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning not to not to to dive if you smoke, because it can do weird things to your lungs. Well, is vaping any worse or any less well, worse? Well, I mean, they uh, recently in the news you had vaping where there was actually toxins in the uh, some of the cheap vape fluids that people were buying that or was, uh, making themselves. Yeah. That was the other aspect that was identified. Yep. So, yeah. But, you know, as my dad would say, just don't do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, is it, is, uh, guy, another squirrel moment. I was watching, uh, one of these crime shows. And people were drunk and they were playing Russian roulette, except they were playing the version where instead of you put it to your head, you put it to your friend's head. And of course, <laughs> it went off. I'm like, you know, this is like, this is like stupid beyond stupidity. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, kind of similar things. Ah, uh, here we go. Exquisite gold jewelry recovered from Lord Elgin shipwreck off the Greece, Kathira Island. Greek Ministry of Culture announced Tuesday that marine archaeologists have discovered exquisite gold jewelry, cooking pots, and other valuable ancient objects in the historic wreck of the Mentor. Uh, the brig belonging to Lord Elgin, which sank off Kathir Island in 1802. The Mentor sank while transporting a portion of the priceless antiquities of Lord Elgin's team had plundered from the Parthenon and from other areas around the Acropolis as well as other Athens monuments. The recent underwater exploration by Greece's Ephorat for underwater antiquities under chief archaeologist Demetrius, starting with K, (laughs) recovered a gold ring, a pair of earrings, three chess pieces, four other chess pieces have been found in previous years. The most recent dive also uncovered intact cookware, as well as other wooden and iron items, which were most likely ship fittings. The ship had left the port of uh, Piraeus near Athens en route to Malta with a final destination in the United Kingdom. The mentor sank due to severe weather on September 15, 1802, after crashing into rocks off the small port of 
Avomanus on Kathira, the quick sank to the bottom of the sea, coming to rest at the depth of 23 meters or 75 feet. All the passengers' crews were rescued by the vessel in in Quitos. Uh, Lord Elgin organized a desperate salvage mission upon first hearing of the maritime disaster near Kathira, using sponge diver from the islands of Simeon and uh, Kylomonos. The Parthenon marbles were eventually salvaged from the shipwreck and shipped to Malta, where they were continued on their faithful journey to the United Kingdom. That's some nice. Wouldn't mind finding something like that. Yeah, <clears throat> a little bit of history there, <clears throat> because. That is like double history, because even though it went down in 1802, you know that some of these items are even much older than that. <clears throat> I liked another one you had about the scuba divers filming how the octopus eats a dead whale. Let me see. Where did I, did I? Oh, yeah, here it is. Unique photos. This was from Wires News Facts. Unique photo scuba diver filming how the octopus dead whale eats up the sea floor. During the, uh, the last dive of the year, the expedition American scientists from the NOAA were uh, with unique images to capture. I think there's a little bit of a translation issue here. On the ocean floor, more than two miles beneath the surface of the water was the carcass of five-meter-long whale, making the researchers a rare opportunity to get scavengers into action. However, on closer inspection, they saw the dead whale was eaten by dozens of octopi, crabs, eels, and worms. Uh, for scuba divers to visit the wreck a, of a man-o'-war, but the discovery of something very rare on the way back, section of whale to be filmed thanks to drones, cameras, bubbles, groundbreaking. I don't know who's, I'd like to know what language this is translated into and then from. The dead whale was found more than 40 pounds of plastic in its stomach. Find out more about any chance. See, I think what happens is they've got feeds coming in here. Well, I'm just curious how they know it's 40 pounds of plastic. Well, because it sounds better if you say it's 40 pounds of plastic. I mean, do you see plastic in there? Is that what they're seeing in those images? I don't know. Yeah, because these are, when at first I thought it was a large octopus, but what I'm seeing is the baleen from the whale. And then it's all these smaller octopus that are just kind of scavenging. It's like a free lunch. I don't know, in the upper right-hand corner, maybe that image is the one where they're saying there's plastic in there. It's hard to tell. I find that interesting. Stuff we just don't see every day, even if you do follow uh, underwater animals. And then this one, I particularly like that side scan or that composite. 110-year-old Great Lake shipwreck mystery solved. Uh this is a wreck from Lake Huron in April 29th, 1909. The men aboard the Russian 231-foot passenger vessel made their way from Port Huron to Alpena, Michigan. Uh, and I think we covered this one a little bit before, but I, did the, I don't remember when we talked about this wreck before they had a name. Is that new that they've now calling it the Russian? I don't know. Uh, I don't remember that picture. 
No, I don't remember the picture, but they they talked about the the vessel, you know, that William Taft was president. Hmm. And they're picking on Taft saying he was 340 pounds. I don't know, was he a big guy? Taft was, as I recollect, that one shot is interesting because it almost looks like a whaleback in that one shot, looking at the bow. Yeah. But that is a cool picture. Yeah. Yeah, 1909, when did whalebacks, were they late 1800s to early 1900s? Oh, this was uh, an image lifted from the 3D mosaic model. All right. Okay. So it's, it's not a, a real picture picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they go in. So it's it's worth it. There's a few articles out there that cover it. Uh, but I just, that, that compositor, that scan, it looked, appears to be a composite now, uh, just caught my eye. That was, that yeah. was very interesting. And I think we're going to see this more and more. I think uh, that's going to become the standard is with what software can do by combining uh, data and images from different sources. You get to see that. It said, we've only had conducted three dives in the Russia to date. These tantalizing dives, these tantalizing dives pose many questions about the intriguing wreck and may can be contained at hundreds of crates of preserved and contained in the cargo holds. Uh, they talk about all the U.S. archaeologists, the Michigan and NOAA archaeologists. Uh, I think it's interesting they reference that sits on an even keel at 220 feet with intact metal after cabins, boiler house, and galley area. The mitts and mast stands serenely above the deck. Yeah, the Russia's so, wooden passenger cabins designed to accommodate up to 50 passengers, hatch covers, and pilot house floated off when she dove to the bottom. And that was a common design, wasn't it? To have those. Yeah. Well, part of it was supposed to be like the pilot house to be acting as a rescue or a, a, life, a life vessel. Yeah. You could hang on to it. Yeah, the plans to return to Russia next summer are being discussed to acquire additional information about the cargo and many artifacts. Throughout the vast debris field surrounding the Russia of special interest are the 1872 compound steeple engines still solidly held in place within the cluttered engine room area. See, I think this one's different than what we had talked about before, but because it wasn't that shallow. Uh, well, one of the newer ones was over 500 feet. Yeah. Is that the one yeah. you're thinking about? That's the one I'm and thinking about. Yeah. And I'm looking at this 3D mosaic, and then I'm looking at the photo, and I'm not seeing a real good correlation, the aft end of it. At least on my photos, anyway. Yeah, I am I agree with you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Send us more images. Keep diving it. Uh, but, yeah, if they, if they put those numbers out at 220 feet, I think uh, you're going to see some uh, tech divers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. not bad. Yeah, they're going to want to see that. Yeah. Um, and it's nice enough to look at, too. I mean, I wish they had some good underwater shots as opposed to this one. Yeah. Because that's a 3D rendering as opposed to, I wonder what the viz is, what the algae really looks like on it, and what's the bottom look like. Yeah. <clears throat> but so they're kind of like little pictures in time when you see, when you look at the ages because they, it's like just the way the hulls and strengthening of the structure. Because if you if you scroll to the next imagery, you can see the a photo of it when it was on the surface. 
they've kind of got that arc that they had made into them. Kind of add some strength. Interesting. And then how about some potential cool scuba gear? Uh, I didn't realize that you could get a dive watch this inexpensive. Uh, Invicta's $70 pro watch, which I said that's representing $20 off the normal price. Available on Amazon. Uh, and you can get to it in the show notes. By the time you get to it, the, the you know, a lot of these are uh, special prices just to get you... Uh, to get some press and then they go away. But I didn't realize you get dive watches. I was always thought they were over a couple hundred bucks for a good dive watch. I don't know. I don't know enough about this brand. Is that a good brand? I don't know. I, I've always used a Timex. I've got that $21 from Walmart. That's good down to 140 feet. And I clip it onto my BC and I use it till it dies. And that's you know, a couple my problem- of years. Is I have I have not had a a watch last more than one or two dives. Why? I don't know. I they just they they flood or leak or just stop working. Uh, and I've and never was, had a Timex do that to me, which is really. I mean, I get those cheap ones for that particular reason, yeah. and. I you know I leave it in case I just strap it onto my my ring I can look at it and they work fine and again like you said I'm used to them two hundred bucks for a good dive watch it's stainless steel blah 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 and I said the hell with it went to the Timex I've never been disappointed yeah I just uh, and I can't say if I've had an actual Timex but you know I'll I'll get these cheapy watches and they all say 50 meters, a hundred meters. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And you know, I'll do gull Lake and the thing will die on me, you know, which is nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I just think that they throw that on saying, Oh, most people are going to go in the pool, you know, what's your, what are you going to get down 12 feet in your normal residential pool at most? You're not even a half an atmosphere there. Uh, but, yeah, I just I just don't have any luck. Um, so I I have to rely on the dive computer. But yeah, maybe yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, a nice stylish watch with a yeah yeah maybe I'll take a look at. It. It's probably about time. Well, I'm looking at this other part. It said down at the bottom of it, water resistant to 200 meters, 660 feet. In general, suitable for professional marine activity and serious surface water sports, but not for scuba diving. What? How is it not for scuba diving? That's what it says. Invicta Pro stainless steel steel watch features. It's down at the bottom just before we get to the one with the speaker. Okay. And as soon as okay. it said, but not for scuba diving, it's like, excuse me, but why the hell do you care if it's good to 600 feet if you're not diving? Well, how yeah? How else would you ever do it? it back up. You know, even even a free diver isn't going to be typically, unless you're trying to set a world record. You're not going down that deep, huh? Let me see if they if they, if they say something. Not more than once. <laughs> well, it says. Well, here's the thing: water resistant, and I think that's what they're all saying. And they just throw that number on there because they, they think 200M looks cool. Yeah, and they're, they're specifically saying not scuba diving. Yep. Ah, chicken shit. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. I'll take that back. They're not they're no good. No good at all. When you when you're too scared to say that, you're afraid a diver's what they don't want to have happen is that you go down and you use that as your primary uh device. There's some lawyer somewhere said, "Well, if they're counting on that for their decals, but that's not what that that's I'm using these as a it's like a backup timer. You go down, you 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 look time, and then you know if your dive computer implodes or something or goes flaky, you can at least look that and just verify. That's uh, it, nuts. What what are you doing? Who who else other than a scuba diver is down at six hundred? Even a scuba diver. How many scuba divers we know who are going to six hundred sixty feet? Not very many that are going to be coming back up. Well, it's it's like having one that's uh, like a watch that can be used in space, but then saying it's not for astronauts. Uh, I don't. Know. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's all marketing, marketing. I tell you. Uh, let me see what else. Oh, oh, we had some more here. Let me pull those up. Uh, this came from Dima's show, Undercurrent Magazine. You can get to them at www.undercurrent.org. A worthy subscription to them, even even though they're not a sponsor. Uh, but they did cover some uh, some stuff at the recent Dima show. Uh, the Atomics Aquatic section of Hurish Outdoors. They said, open a tank valve on the surface. You'll spot how cold the air is from it. When the air from your tank is depressurized, as it is by regular, it expands, loses a lot of heat. That's your lungs, that, and it takes your lungs to warm up the cold air. No matter how warm the water is, you eventually get chilled, increasing your air consumption, cutting short your dive. Scuba heat is a coil of copper-nickel alloy that, suits, that sits in your air supply between the first and second stage of the regular exchanges heat with the surrounding water to make it approach ambient water temperature, making it more comfortable to breathe. Scuba heat is expected to cost $350? Is this... Is this something, if I'm spending $350 on this thing, why not just go rebreather? I mean, does this this make sense to you, Mac? Well, no, I was going to let you finish it, then I was going to put in a couple of two cents. Okay, okay. <laughs> it sounds pricey, but at what price comfort? I don't think it's solely for cold water divers. And this is from uh, Atomic Aquatics. Okay, becomes cold my water comment. Dive- my yeah. comment was going to be, I just gave you part of the article. They were saying, but just hang around because you're going to have China knockoffs within a year. Those would be so much cheaper. Then I keep remembering, back in the day, we had an item called Wamba. Did you ever hear of it? No, I haven't heard of it. W-A-M-B, Warm Air Breathing Apparatus. And what that was, it was a device that you couple to your exit hose. And basically, you filled it with really boiling hot water, and it warmed the air as it passed through the Wamba to your regulator. Now, to me, that makes more sense than me having to use my lungs to cool the water or the, to cool the air. They actually used hot water in a very nice insulating container as it ran through these coils 
too. So when you breathe it, it would be warmer. That would that make a little bit more sense. That. Yeah, the, the, the $350, I mean, that, come on. I can, to, make it, to make it cold. Yeah, I, I can machine. I can. I, we're in the part of Michigan where there are machinists and fabrication shops all over. We could make something like this, no problem. Three hundred fifty bucks. Give me a break. If you buy one and you love it, let us know. But it looks like a solution trying to find a problem. If that's that big a deal, then you'll absolutely love a rebreather. Uh, and then they said, when it comes to cold water diving, one way to go is with a heated vest. The Finio provided such a thing, safe enough to use under a wetsuit if required. Even tropical water sucks heat from your body. So a new heated vest could be a good application conjunction with a lightweight wetsuit. Uh, um, I know. Well, I don't know people doing it under wetsuits, but dry suits, uh, uh, Bob Sweeney loves his... Uh, his setup, which I think he modified from a, a motorcycle uh, jacket heater. There's a lot of modifications you can make, and there's a lot who make them specifically for dry suits. Uh, you can get on a lot of techie sites, mm-hmm. and it's amazing what is out there. And more important, what you can do yourself. Yeah. Yeah, because I think his was kind of a hybrid. He had bought some things because you've got the uh, – he he's got this battery pack that you can use for a dive light, or I think that's what they were using. And uh, you know, it go you can run the electrical through the. Uh, I think it was the inflator of his uh, dry suit. Is a uh, you've already got a hole in the dry suit for your inflator, or uh, it, yeah, it's inflator. Yeah, there's a lot of debate on how you want to do it. Do you want to have mm-hmm. external battery? Or internal. The only problem with an internal, if you ever had a short, oh gosh, it's not well, going to be a happy time. Well, how about the boat in California? Yeah. Do you want a fire going off in your pants <laughs> because you got a lithium ions just decided it wasn't happy with the umpteenth charge? So yeah, it's uh, some stuff's better in the water. I mean, even though yeah, I think lithium ion can do some nasty things in water, at least you can disconnect because a lot of the the ones i've seen people have done uh you know some of these water connections and you can let that thing go rogue in the water as you swim away uh yeah wow uh so that does it for scuba in the news so kind of an, an interesting cross of articles yes uh, yeah and then diving uh I think since the last episode, had had Kevin gone out and picked up the buoy on the uh, Havana since we talked last? I think no, he, I was already. Yeah, he took that off last week. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, brought that then, up at the dive club meeting. Yep. Yeah. Oh, how how the dive club meeting go? I, I was, unfortunately couldn't make that. Well, it was it was uh, the normal attendance, but if you read your newsletter, one of the items that we brought up is it is apparent through the industry and around the country that service organizations and clubs of any type are having a problem getting and or maintaining members uh, because basically the people who are in the big ones, like even the American veterans, the AMVETs, uh, American Legion, uh, you name it, 
they normally lose like 10% of the people per year and they get new people. Well, that number has increased tremendously and most of those organizations are still hosted by members who are now in their 60s and 70s and up there. And as they pass away, they're not quitting, they're just dying. I don't want to say dying to get out of it, but they are passing off. They're not getting new blood. And uh, we brought that up from the aspect of how do we want our dive club to work? Because the people at the dive club meetings are basically the same 15 to 16 people. Yeah. And that sort of varies. And if you look at those who are going, when we talk about we're the geriatric dive club, we are the geriatric dive club. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it is just uh, how people belong to groups now. Because let's take a look. I mean, let's use a dive club as an example on Facebook. I'm going to launch Facebook. So if I drop, that's what happened. Facebook, my computer. We love our overlords. Um, I'm going to guess that we probably have at least 10, if not 20 times the number of Facebook members than we do of actual members. Oh, we got, it's more. We got 500 and some odd Facebook. Yeah. And we've got active probably on Maybe the, on the 40? roster that I send new newsletters out to 40 some odd people. 40. So that's, a, that's at least 10. So 10 to one. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's part of the perception is people feel like they belong to a group for free, which Facebook is only free because you let them have all your information. Well, it, it's, it's, it's free because one, it lowers our cost uh, and we get more participation. Yep. And even though a lot of the people who are online with us, are either not divers or new divers are not diving a lot, you know. And part of the reasoning, I, I went through and did a little research on the reasoning with people, are, you know, they're not joining back up. And it's electronics. It's they are more in, involved in electronic media as opposed to going to a meeting Mm -hmm. uh, they're more inclined to go do a one-day item with a club, such as our ecology dive. Yep. And that's true. We have more people show up for something like that. And so the topic was, well, how can we increase, even if they're not going to come to the meetings, what about participation? Because it's social. You right. want them to get together. You want to meet these people. You want to have some rapport with them. And their commonality is, one, diving, two, food because everybody eats yeah and we looked at SAS for example they have good turnout for theirs because they have a dedicated person who um, leads each of the week dive items and most of them are afterwards you go eat and then several times during the year they have a potluck so one of the suggestions is we're going to have I think they're going to call it tankless Tuesday and thirsty Thursday and mm -hmm. we're some people have expressed an interest in being the guiding lighter who will show up at the river and or the lake and do something similar. So you know there's a guaranteed dive at posted it in advance where it's going to be. Yeah. yeah. And that might get more people from the aspect to come on out and do a social. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's what it is. And then uh, one thing that we had talked about was the sense uh, the the rules would come in that you can't take things off racks. It kind of made people showing what they collected over the years taboo. Uh, you know, but that you kind of need some of that uh, interest. What what can people see uh, that will draw them in? Because uh, I I've I've believed and I've I've been wrong so far that people are going to get fed up with this online stuff and say, well, don't I want to see some of this stuff for real? They came in and they were talking about with the advent of now the sophisticated VR technology and now the body suits that you can wear while you're doing VR to give you sensory perception of pain and pleasure, cold and hot. They said it's going to revolutionize what people can do sitting in their chair. I mean, if I can give you a 3D wind in your face as you're doing, you know, flocking, which is basically when you're using a wingsuit, that's yeah. called flocking when you do it in a group, you know, with no hazard, no, no, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about pulling and making sure the parachute's going to open. A lot of people are going to like that and do it, even though they are missing out on that little E factor. Hmm. Yeah, I. It's not the same. No, it isn't. But when I, when I go down and touch a shipwreck that's been down there for 150 years, that is different than me watching a video, no matter how immersive it appears. And there's no, and unless you've got a professional simulator doing flight, playing with your airplane, is really great, and it is it's a great asset to learning. It ain't the same because you don't have turbulence. You don't have crosswinds. You don't have wind shear. You don't have balloons and birds to watch out for. So it's not the same. Yeah. And I'm not saying that some of these things aren't fun. I mean, that's, that's the point. And the Absolutely. thing that, and that's the thing that you were, that I've, I look at from a technical aspect and I try to educate like when I'm uh, as a coach of a robotics team is I want them to understand that these games are designed to trigger a response in you that is addictive. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, and I, I, you know, I think a lot of us with an explorer personality, we like things that are challenging to do that we overcome. And the fact that we, and when we overcome them, when we get good, if you look at that mastery curve and you suck at the beginning, but then you eventually get that point where you're not too bad. You can never be a true master, but you can start approaching there. And then that gives you some of the endorphins. A video game can tell by how you're behaving and give you fake milestones that you've hit that give you that same rush that we get with physical activity. And it's hard to compete with that because they can dial it in instead of being two or three large effort uh, accomplishments they can sprinkle them in. And once you get used to this constant dopamine trickle, it's hard for other activities to compete. And that's probably what we're seeing. And they can do it without a threat to their body. Yeah. No matter how scared they get, they know, Hey, all I got to do is take the mask off or turn off the machine. I'm good. But you get there on the top of a building or a bridge and you get off. Uh, 
It ain't the same. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it isn't. And and I run into that with uh, students who come out for robotics. Uh, they show up for a meeting. They never come back. And when somebody asks them, they go, well, I was hoping to do this, but you didn't do that when I was there. So, the, you know, they didn't get that. You know, they didn't realize that the task that they came to join robotics for is something that you work on for months and months and months to even be able to understand how to participate in that thing and that they, they, they can't hang in that long. Instant gratification. Yep. They got to have it now. Well, it's going to be interesting and uh, it's food for thought for us to, how can we make some activities that will maybe draw into more people? And even if it doesn't get the activities for the existing people to get their skills back where they really need to be. Well, I mean, I, for me, that's just been, you know, health and activity. I mean, uh, I I need some sort of gamification or something for exercise and physical activity uh, because it, it's it's kind of this defeating process. You know, I, I'd probably dive more if I was, felt like I was in better shape. And I'd probably, you know, it's like you need to get there. But, be, you know, one but diving is a good exercise. So by not diving, you're not helping yourself off with that exercise so it's uh and or uh, to be safe you want to be in better shape therefore yes. you bite the bullet and you get on that treadmill oh gosh I, for me it's time i mean everything right now i just i don't even know i i i my my most current effort is trying to get sleep because i've been tracking my sleep and there's too many times i'm only getting five hours of sleep so I've been trying to get up to seven or eight, but you've got to sleep in longer, go to bed earlier. I just, with everything I'm trying to get done in a day, it's not fitting in real. Oh, but uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It is, and I'm you know, and using technology, I'm hoping to get better feedback. You know how how do you know? I would I would love to know at like have a little updated report at the end of the day. How did you do? with calories, with cholesterol, with triglycerides, with all the things that affect your your health, it's sometimes hard to tell what were all the elements that went into that. Yeah. And, you know, when you get a test every six months or a year, and then you look and you go, oh, crap, why'd that happen? Yeah, you because know, there's been times in, uh, where I'll get a test and I think, ah, crap, you know, I had this I ate this a week ago and all this stuff, and then you come back and the report's fine. And you're like, well, oh, that wasn't too bad. And then the next time you go and get it, and I feel like I've eaten about the same, if not better, and the report comes back really crappy, and you're like, what's going on here? So it seems to be a little bit of more of a mystery than it should be. Yeah. So do, do you have a uh, dive <clears throat> safety story? Well, I, I have a story. Uh, that's okay. quite interesting, I think. And uh, the the key to it is listen to what I say and tell me what do you think about the person that did this. Okay. This is called wreck diving for beginners. And uh, here's the way I prefer it. Should a teenager with four dives really be visiting Truck Lagoon, which is within the state of Micronesia? What do you think about a novice diver taking his equally novice offspring diving deep inside the confines of a wreck 
Penetrating the second wrecks at Turk Lagoon can be a dark, claustrophobic experience with narrow entry points in many cases and plenty of things to get snagged up with. So it was with some alarm that I read an article by Jim Shepard in Hemispheres, which is a United Airlines in-flight magazine, and that was sent to the uh, undercurrent subscriber. In there, there were initial clues in the first paragraph of that article that revealed Shepard is not an experienced diver. Although he describes himself as scuba-obsessed, the reference to his oxygen tank is always a dead giveaway. But it's not the author's lack of experience that concerns me. It's the fact that he's described taking his children, 20-year-old Emmett and 15-year-old Lucy, inside these wrecks. He stressed to their Turk dive guide they were novices and that prior to the visit they had only made four dives to 40 feet. When he told a certified instructor in Florida that they were going to a truck, he was met with jaw-dropping disbelief, like, you just got certified and you're going to go where? To do what? That reaction is one who has experienced getting lost in a confined space while diving you know, you're going to appreciate it, and you're going to emulate that experience. Despite, uh, despite diving many times, I'll never forget the time that I got lost or lost my way inside a wartime vessel of the USS Embria, which is a passenger freight vessel scuttled by its Italian crew and lying on its port side in 125 feet of water in Wiedengate Reef outside Port Sudan, which is in Sudan. Side note, that ship, by the way, is loaded with 360,000 bombs. Wow. 60 boxes of detonators and other explosive stores totaling 8,600 tons. Side note, Mm. if that ever blows up, it's going to make one hell of a mess in that (laughs) whole port. They already figured if it ever did go up, the port's gone. So anyway, he began to... uh, feel an unawful panic building as I struggled to find my way from its dark recesses. I mean, this gentleman had dove it. He got away away from him because he wasn't using the line. He met unforgiving bulkhead after unforgiving bulkhead before he managed to reacquaint himself with an exit route. And he said, and I still bear those psychological scars. Now, that wreck is not unlike many of those of the Japanese fleet auxiliary sunk by bombers and one or two in Truck Lagoon. The number of intact wrecks invites penetration by divers, and there's much to see. Engine rooms with tools hanging on the racks, engine valves laid out on benches where they were being serviced, engines and generators, oil site-level glasses still intact, huge torpedoes stored on the walls waiting for transfer to submarines, you know, periscopes lying across a ship's companionway. Wonderful things to take a look at and want to draw you in. So, truck is a wreck diver's paradise, but forever remembering the gentleman's unfair and unfortunate experience on the umbrella about getting lost, it makes you wonder. On the dive, this gentleman was carefully to, careful to brief his small and slender truck guide before he penetrated into 20 bowels of a wreck within. With him, I told him explicitly not to lead me anywhere a bigger man carrying twin tanks and a large camera rig 
would find it difficult to squeeze through in the darkness. Despite its popularity, Turk rack diving is not to be taken lightly. There are old divers, bold divers, but as they say, few old bold divers. Prior to getting into the water, actually getting to the water truck, Shepard writes that his two children do what they can to manage their anxieties by wrestling into their BCs. His other son, Adrian, wisely cited claustrophobia, claustrophobia as an excuse and ducked out of the experience. Now, Shepard was not a danger to the a stranger to the dangers lurking underwater. He reflects in his article, however, during a brief underwater experience as a 13-year-old, his air supply had failed without warning, and he had come close to killing himself. Yet he still wanted to dive, and more and more importantly, take his children wreck diving. He tells how they squeeze inside both the Rio de Janeiro Meru, it's a passenger or liner with grunt torrents, uh, the seabed there, the decks are at 40 to 80 feet, the seabed's 110 feet. He's qualified to 40. And the Chenu Karu Maru, which is also an oil tanker with deck guns, 40 feet to 130 feet. Okay, so they're working their way down to the infirmary deep in the stern where we find an operating table still featuring a haunted little spill of arm bones. So you figure out what the depth is. On the Yagmarai Maru, a passenger cargo side, 40 foot on the first part hitting the ship and 110 foot to the dirt. Their guide leads him through a small opening. Imagine a gap just wider than your shoulders not much higher than Ottoman, when a daughter disappears in the darkness of a tiny metal hole at 80 feet, a parent should follow. So Emmett squeezes in after me, he said. In each case, Shepard states he has to memorize where the obstacles and openings are before the guide turns a corner and disappears in the darkness. And so it goes, an exciting description of the wrecks and diving the wrecks of Truck Lagoon. They even did a night dive on the Chanu Karumaru. Said, one slightly lunatic addition to our last, our next to last day, he writes, one moment from that dive stays with me. Emmett discovering through a raised forward section of a bridge, the wonderful eerie garrel, a glimpse of a narrow and encrusted metal staircase hatch leading down, down, down through three and then four decks to a deep, Blackness that even our headlights, our bright lights, could not penetrate. Shepard reflects that they'd wish they brought more flashlights. Imagine a slow-motion labyrinth and steeplechase in the dark, with all sorts of shattered and disintegrating metal structures across your path at random angles, and a ceiling foot or so above your head. You get the idea? It says, I followed Lucy's fins down yet another pinched and murky passageway. But the good news is this was an intelligently managed risk. Now, Shepard's a good writer and it's wonderful written piece. But what do you make of a novice diver taking his novice diver offspring on such dives? What risk did they seem oblivious to? The young people were lucky to experience the pinnacle of wreck diving so early in their diving careers, but were they also lucky in some other way? Would you have taken your 15-year-old daughter or son on such an adventure? When sending the story to to uh, 
undercurrent, Mark, the gentleman who had it, wrote, I was a little appalled by the idea of taking novice divers into wrecks without training and gear, especially those wrecks that may be starting to collapse. Shepard does not mention wreck reels, but he does mention that they'd wish they'd have brought more lights. Seriously, what kind of diver enters a wreck without multiple lights? I'd like to hear what you think. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I I cannot begin to think of where he was so out to lunch. Well, that's the type of not the the problem was he didn't adequately understand the risk even to himself so this is a case of overconfidence and underestimating the risk and uh, twin tanks i don't you know you if you're jacques cousteau with modern gear and it was your fourth dive you would not be doing that so uh, I, it is, just it frightens me to think you're following a, somebody in the dark in the interior of a vessel with no lines, no bailout. I uh, cannot even imagine. So, so let's pull this apart. First thing is, in four dives, you can't have adequate training, know-how, no way. Uh, four dives, you're not even to advanced open water open diving water. levels. So, and everything you here any was that. Yeah, nope, you should be doing no penetration. You shouldn't be doing anything deeper than uh, 40, 50 feet, even though you're technically recreational. You need to go spend the time, take the advanced open water, or get 100 dives under your belt. And depending on how, what those dives are in. I mean, if you're doing 100 dives in 25 uh feet of water you know less than you know 10 meters and uh it's perfect crystal visibility with uh 70 degree water or what would that be uh, celsius you know 30 some uh yeah that that's not you're, you're not technical i mean i'm not even saying technical but you're not you you're still basic you need to experience a little bit it's it's like you don't you don't buy your 16-year-old a Ferrari and then let him go on a uh, mountain trail with no guardrails. I mean, it's just, it's it's insane. Even though, you know, he understands gas pedal fast, brake slow down. Uh, yeah, that's, that's dangerous. And then you start adding in uh, a penetration dive. I mean, you didn't have any training in the first place. Uh, and, so, and and that's why you're not doing the, you didn't have the, you weren't doing the proper cave lines going in. You didn't have redundancy in lighting, you know, two if not three lights. And then on top of that, Turk Lagoon, how far away are you from a normal port? That's not like you're, you're going to uh, the Key West or something. You're, you're, you're away from all, there's so many different levels where things could have gone bad. Uh, the smart one was the kid who claimed he had claustrophobia and, and opted out of the dive. That's a smart one in the group. Oh my! I, I just read that, and I, I wouldn't take my 15-year-old daughter in that condition. <laughs> you know, 40, 50 yeah. feet, getting her used to diving, yeah. But, God, I just can't imagine that. I just cannot imagine that. 
why? Why did why does a, a, a your fourth dive need to be in Turk Lagoon? Is it because you heard that was the greatest dive in the world? Let's go do that next. Well, if you got the money, because that was not cheap. Well, uh, well, how about you go from Turk Lagoon? Don't wait for your, uh, you know, you, you finish a dive at five p.m. Don't wait to climate. Just get in a plane. Let's go to Everest. <laughs> well, while we're at it, we'll just go up to Everest, uh, and then just climb up the mountain that afternoon. I mean, why don't we just do that? That is, this is crazy. Yeah. So I thought yeah. I thought it was worth, you know. Yeah, and and I hate key item is I had on. a guide and the guide wouldn't get me lost. Wouldn't get me. Yeah. Well, I, I well, the, somebody before. We, you know what it is, is that the the guide is saying, uh, I need more business than somebody's paying me. And you would hope it would be, you know, they would, they would care a little bit, but wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought you'd enjoy I, the uh, presentation. There. Oh, that was, that, 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 I appreciate that. That was a fun one. Yeah. Well, the, and, and the first clue is he calls it an oxygen tank. Yeah. And, and and to be fair, maybe that was his editor. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes stuff gets edited after you do it. But four dives, that is nuts. Well, and how can he afford that? Who, <laughs> are you are you just independently wealthy where you take you're you're going was this a case of I wanna I, I've I've seen pictures of Turk Lagoon, I wanna go there. What's the minimum I need to do to actually be able to make it? So you take a a scuba certification course. Four dives. That's barely even out of the class. Yeah, took the class. And then you went one. You went diving one more time. I don't know. This is, I'm I'm scratching my head. It's like I. It's like I'm in disbelief. <laughs> well, I I don't know. I wonder if Eric or you know Derek what, what they think is that. Sure, that's okay. <laughs> okay, Eric <laughs> says good. I'm going to Turk next fall. Uh, of course, I can't tell if he's being serious or just making fun. Uh, but I'm I'm betting Eric probably has hundreds, if not thousands, times more experience than somebody on their fourth dive. Yeah, truck is on. Derek says it's on his wish list. It's on my wish list too. I would actually love to get there uh, and go and do it. Uh, uh, SAS diving Kalamazoo has done. Uh, truck lagoon a, a few times many many times he has probably been there more often than anybody in the states uh he has gone there yeah. so often that he does get to go places normal people do not because he has a really stellar reputation with him yeah and he he knows the context and that's some of the tricks you want to know how to have a great uh dive trip it's find somebody who's does it and has done it multiple times and uh yeah rick sass i love hearing his you go into a shop you've got you see all the photos and he'll he'll tell you about it so um in michigan you get in the kalamazoo battle creek area you want to stop in that dive shop and see what they've got good good one to book with yeah yeah 15 dives yeah even even then yeah, and and I would make it like say you were planning on doing a trip to truck, and you had a son, and they said, "Yeah, I want to go." I would put some sort of constraints on it to say, you know what, 
show me that you can do it. Let's go get a hundred die, at least a hundred dives. Uh, and let's get these two or three C cards along with it. Not that a C card is, uh, your magic ticket to it, but you know, have them put some effort in, uh, and then, then even maybe make them do, you know, especially if it's a, a teenager, maybe you, you do the, let's do a report, you know, do a little bit of uh, an essay, you know, show me that you're into it. Yeah. And then, then they're saying that truck does offer some less advanced dives, but you still need more than 10. I agree. Uh, yeah. Cause at any location, uh, you've, you've got the range of them. You've got, you know, surface and, and nice, and then you keep doing penetration. I mean, you know, even me and all the diving I've done, uh, I don't, I don't do serious penetration. Dive. All you'd got to do is do, do, do a dive and get yourself in a position that you're on the other side of where you want to be. And you realize, Oh shoot. If this goes wrong or if this goes wrong, how do I get back out? You're going to do that yeah. one time, and you're going to never, ever do that again. And that's well, a voice that's, of experience talking. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing with four dives. You haven't, you haven't had enough close calls to realize what the close calls are. So. I, I did. A, my, one of my dives was commercial, and I'm doing um, – I'm on surface supply here. And I did not have a bailout, which, well, that's that's another story. And I'm I'm investigating, and we're talking shallow water, less than twenty feet, but we're talking a powerhouse dam hydro that's been filled with concrete in the Forbay area. And they're thinking about how do we remove the concrete if we want to redo this dam? And I am climbing and going through little openings and whatever. And I struggle to get through one section, and I'm through it, and it's like suddenly struck me like, how the hell am I going to get back out? And it was not a really, really pleasant feeling to uh, be in that predicament, like, uh, what if my air supply goes out now? Because with the air, I have time to think about how do I get out, which I did. But if I'd have had scuba, and I ran out of here trying to figure out how to get back out where I was at. That would have not, have, you know, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. And there's that this saying, if you've got air, you've got time. Right. Well, the compound is I, I got out of that area, got back through the, and I'm in a tunnel, by the way, getting to the, the other place. I got <laughs> back out, got to the area that I had direct descent back to the surface and there, and I'd already finished the job early. They said, while you're down there, Next mistake, without a good job oh, briefing. Okay. Go to the left channel and check that tunnel out. And what I had ne neglected to mention, or I just took it, but I figured they knew what was going on, another mistake. I had already switched from free flow, meaning air through an open helmet, to restricted breathing, meaning as only I got air when I demanded it. All right, you know the difference? Yeah. Okay, I have to breathe in manually to get the air. And I'm going through this tunnel looking around, and it's like, man, that demand's getting a little, uh, oh, I got it. I'm down there, and then the, the guy at the surface says, hey, Mac, you might want to go in demand for now. And it's like, ding, ding, ding. Uh, why? Uh, I've been on demand for 
20 minutes. Uh, our compressor stopped. Okay. Oh. Uh, he said, you want to come back? And I said, well, what about the backup? Well, the reservoirs are down, and the, and we also have large tanks that feed the reservoirs, so if the compressor goes down, well, they weren't working for some reason. Bottom line is, when I got back to the opening, they always teach you in dive school, never take your hat off, because if you dry drown, it's a lot easier to resusc- you know, res- resuscitate you, and you don't have salt water in your lungs that will give you pneumonia and other crap down the road. And I was to the point, I was ready to pull that freaking mask off because I couldn't breathe. You you know, oh, put wow. your full face on and start sucking in there. You talk about not, not a good feeling. And I broke the surface as I was ripping that sucker off. Wow. And I, I had a few words with my tender. Yeah. And, and nobody in that crew ever, ever went back into anything that did not have an auxiliary backup tank as required by law on their freaking back. Yeah. Wow. Never let that happen. But that just proved, you know, you can't take somebody else's word. It's you at the other end of that airline. Oh, right. So when I used to dive anymore, it's like, where's my backup thousand cubic foot cylinder? Is it plumbed to that tank? And is the regulator good? All right. Is the tank good? And where's yeah, my good. compressor? Is it got fuel? And what about the filter? And do I have a freaking good bailout? Oh, God. And if something goes wrong, is it uh, long enough to get back out? We did 7,000-foot penetrations on a tunnel. To get that last diver that 7,000 feet out, we had divers at the bottom of the tunnel, 1,000 foot, 1,000 foot, 1,000 foot. I'll tell you a secret. You cannot have hard gear on at 7,000 feet, have your airline go, and make it out on an 80 or 100. No, no. 7,000 feet? You can't. That's an hour. But you'll you'll learn a lot of things when things go wrong. Hopefully, nobody dies. You learn, and you will never do that stupid stuff again. Well, and that stuff all compounds. So you talk about the distance in, you know, in surface applied, do you have bailouts? Uh, how often do we see cave divers not make it uh, because they were counting on a scooter that, for whatever reason, they either went the wrong way in the cave or the scooter ran out of charge? Yeah, and it was so easy to take a very large cylinder, put clip-ons to it, float it out to midpoint, and then on your bailout system, have a, a, a secondary, well, not a secondary, they got a bailout, do another hose line that is compatible with the big tank. So if you get back to the big tank, you're good. You know you know the cylinders I'm talking about, like we filled from? Like a T-cylinder? Yeah, the big yeah, ones. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Those... You, and again, just like what we say, you got air, you got time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm thinking I want to put a double of those on back <laughs> depending on where you're going yeah if you're conan but, you might be able to yeah. handle that but again you do that one time and you if you have got any smarts whatsoever you're never going to let somebody else get you in that position again yeah. because you just learned they're on the freaking surface you're not yeah and if you're not comfortable then you get it fixed till you're comfortable 
Yeah, the worst case they've got is a bunch of extra paperwork when you don't return. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. And and that's a, that's a tough thing with life lessons is you almost want to have the you want to have a close call enough that doesn't hurt you, but lets you realize what the true risks are that you're up against. And there's so many people who don't that their first time meeting that risk is the end. Yeah. 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 The small ones tell you about that. And you, again, the more you dive, hopefully you have the little ones to start calling your attention to it. You just don't have a massive and that you have been taught well enough to take that freaking bail out. You know, and don't go in without a line. Let me rephrase that. Don't go in without the proper training because lines break. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's a skill no matter what your industry in. I mean, if your job, even if it's not life-threatening, is that's a skill to understand how do I know what my capabilities are? Not saying that's your, your permanent capability, but what are your limits and how do you extend that limit safely? Well, uh, in, in flying, there's another little aspect. People uh-huh. figure out, you know, what are their major reasons pilots died, pi- private? Uh-huh. Believe it or not, number one item, totally preventable, they run out of freaking fuel. Yeah. <laughs> now you say, that. everybody knows that, so why does it continue to happen? And it happens because you press it. Well, I got just enough to get there. And you get away with it. And next time, well, I did it before. I can do it again. It's just a little bit. But, you know, the third time, I can, but you didn't count on the headwind. Well, now you can. And it's like, once you do one little item and realize, I mean, when you get out and dip your tank and you got maybe a quart of fuel in there, that's not even enough to burp the freaking engine. If you didn't learn something really hard, you never will. Wow. And if you have passengers with you, no, I have not done that, but oh. I flew with an occasion when we landed and we dipped the tank and it was like, how stupid was that? Wow. Never, ever again. But you get away with a little bit and you press it and you press it. And then that one time, that little bit is what takes you down. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know of friends of the show who are no longer with us who similar situations have happened. So, you know, it you can pay the ultimate price if you're not careful. And it happens enough when you are careful. So, you know, yeah. you don't stretch it. Diving, flying, jumping, whatever. Do wow. those little can, small steps yeah, can, and know can, where that next step comes from here. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, read these accent reports and try to remember, I'm not going to let that happen to me. You know, try to learn from somebody else's experience. Don't go through it yourself, even though if it happens to you and you live, you're going to freaking remember it and not do that again. Yeah. Unless you are really an idiot. But enough of that. Sorry about that. Yeah. yeah. No, not not a problem. I mean, if, if somebody gets something from this episode, it's that they need to have the proper training and, and do the best they can understand the risks. And, you know. And, some, and sometimes you don't really understand the risk. You right. think you do, but you don't. Well, could you imagine being that father and then one of your kids doesn't make it? 
I then cannot. You, do that. And then you no. then you have to go back and explain to your wife how your twenty year old you helped contribute to him not coming home. Yeah, that would be like the worst thing I can imagine. So hopefully you're enjoying this podcast. <laughs> if, you're, if, if you can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. We're on Twitter at scubaobsessed. And we would appreciate, and I, I just heard this week that it's not considered cool to ask for uh, five-star reviews. So you're supposed to ask for any sort of review possible, but hopefully it's it's a good one. So. Uh, give us some feedback. Uh, uh, you can email us at the show at scuba obsessed. And uh, the ultimate appreciation is if you have the means, you know, for about the price of uh, one of those foo-foo coffees that my wife likes, uh, you could help contribute to the show. $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes. Uh, and I like to do some shout outs to some recent Patreon subscribers. So, uh, we're, we're hitting a level which allows us to continue at least for another year, but uh, we are getting close to the big renewal bill that happens every every uh, year or so, uh, pay for the hosting, which also hosts a lot of the other uh, groups and organizations. Uh, you know, I, we, we donate a lot of hosting and space and effort for other groups, and that largely comes from the Patreons of the show. It all comes together and keeps things going and we thank you uh if you and they're all diving fine. related they're all diving related yeah yeah so thank you very much and uh feedback we want feedback yeah feedback let us know what we're doing i'm i, I seriously want to get into some video i keep buying a little bit more video gear so often uh playing around with that my my next thing i need to do and I just uh, don't have the funds to do it as I really need to get a video editing rig. I'm looking at my computer right now, and it is a video editing rig from about nine years ago. Uh, and, you know, mo- modern video editing, one reason why you haven't seen me do any video is I'm not going to do anything less than 4K. Uh, I've played around. I've, I've recently bought some gear that claimed to be 4K, and I knew it was cheap. I was just experimenting. Uh, but it's got to be 4K, 60 frames per second. And, you know, that's really kind of the minimum basement. And you got some editing. And I've been, uh, just today, I was actually looking at some uh, people who are starting to do, uh, you've got the 360 and you've got VR. And I think there's a huge opportunity for uh, doing some of this virtual reality. You know, as much as I'd like to see people get out in the wrecks to really appreciate the wrecks and document them. Uh, some of this VR done the proper way uh, lets people uh, like, you know, cause there's going to be some dives. How, how many dives are there? If I, if I dove two dives a day for the rest of my life, I still couldn't hit everything. So there's going to be some dives. I'm only going to be able to get to get or experience maybe virtually. So let's document some of those. And that's some of what we're trying to get around to, to be able to do at least here in the Great Lakes, I'd like to get some uh, nice VR dives on them. So that's that's where I'm heading gear wise. Um, Matt, do you have anything you want to plug? Nope. Uh, just stay safe out there, but don't do what is it? Don't say, don't do what I've done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All <laughs> the bad to learn from the experiences. Calls. Oh, and uh, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and generally the reason is inexperience and believing what somebody else told you you can do is not always correct. Little steps is the way to do it. And, and and scuba diving has matured to the point where it is worth getting the formal training. And I'm not talking about you take a college course on it, even though those are good. But go to your dive shop, talk to them. If you get in, uh, if you don't have a good feeling about it, go to a different dive shop. Make sure you feel comfortable and that they're uh, taking the proper proper consideration. And there are individual certifications. You've got open water. You've got advanced open water. Really plan if you're if you're a new diver and you haven't dove, plan on doing both of those. If not back to back, uh, you know how I did it and and Jim Kleeman did it as we did them about a, a year or so apart. And I really didn't feel like I was qualified to learn how to dive until after the advanced open. And different people are different ways. Jim was picked on it much sooner than I did, you know, 20 dives in. He was uh, much more capable than I was after 50 dives, but it eventually comes around. You can, you can figure it out. You know, once you get the buoyancy and some of the things, then you start advancing the skills, you know, penetration, you should get training on that. If you're doing ice diving, get some training. Uh, it's, it's all good stuff. Just do it safely. Are you ready for that time of the show? Oh, yeah. yeah. Let me see. I've got the, uh, I've got it. I got it queued up somewhere. I just got to find out where I got it queued up. Crap, not there. Okay. <laughs> Stop teasing. Now I'm just teasing all over. Uh, I had the uh, the joke, and I thought I pasted it up, but well, here I go. Okay. Oh, I know what I did. I okay. Yeah, I do have. I did have it. In... Okay, here we go. This is <laughs> enough teasing. Uh, Neil was in a pub, extremely drunk. The barman Simon noticed this, and when Neil asked for another whiskey. The barman politely told him he was too drunk to be served another drink. Neil leaves. He walks out of the pub and again the side door and asks Simon for a double of whiskey. A little frustrated, Simon repeats the answer and said, earlier. Neil again leaves, enters through the further side door, walks up to the barman, asks for a scotch. Simon is now quite annoyed and tells Neil that he is too drunk and they get a ride home and leave the pub. Once more, Neil leaves. Again, he comes in, this time through the back door. Neil walks up to the barman. Before he could say a word, Simon explodes at him. I told you already. You've already had way too much to drink. You can't have another whiskey. Get out of my bar. This gruntled Neil glances at Simon and asks, Man, how many bars do you work at? Yeah, I think it was the doors. Uh, Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
hopefully Craig was recording this. Otherwise, this will be the longest episode we never recorded. <laughs> uh.